Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Elizabeth Rossi Derek Moore Stephanie Sawyer Philippa Ballantyne With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 7. Hello, I'm J. Daniel Sawyer, your author and host for this mad journey. You're listening to Episode 7 of Free Will, and this is the story so far. In transit aboard Kyrie for weeks, Cassie Orenthal and Doug Reeves face an uncertain homecoming, while Jim must do all he can to find the moles in the resistance and track down Allie before it's too late. Meanwhile, in the walls of every structure in the solar system, an alien consciousness pulses and hungers. And now, Episode 7 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Part 2. Agnosticism and Other Faiths of Certainty Chapter 1. Everywhere. 22 November, 2129 On the whole, orbital mechanics was not a subject that interested the omnivore. The only time such things had an impact on its consciousness were when it noticed that certain subnets seemed to develop time lags for a few months on end. As Mars and Nineveh both, in their own staggering ways, slid out of opposition, their transmission paths grew longer and longer until, in another three months' time, each would operate as a segment on a telescoping data relay pipeline. Human communication, like a handball, bounced around the sun. The omnivore's most distant pseudopodia didn't extend out that far. Every time it pushed out to the outer colonies during opposition, its new tentacles died when the transmission delays grew too long. Its awareness starved, and then it had to start all over again. It was the nearest the omnivore ever got to pain, and an experience it did not care for a bit. Through the tidal ebb and flow of data in the narrow conduits that led off-world and back again, the omnivore felt an itch, like a fragment of underchewed gristle. A weakly encrypted stream of text, nothing that even gave it pause, beating its way through the jam of higher-priority traffic, creating problems in the stream, pressing toward the Vatican. The text itself told a story, and the story formed a shape, like a disused jigsaw piece. It had curves and grooves and hooks and divots so intricate that it seemed it might never match anything. But the omnivore was hungry, and it was old, and it knew. The piece had a smell about it, a trace left in ones and zeros across the wetware cubes that felt familiar. An old song long forgotten from childhood, or its nearest equivalent, perhaps. It took a few trillion cycles for the omnivore to find out why, But in the end, it did. The omnivore learned. Always. The shapes snapped into place. The letter carried a name. 
Scott Walters, implicitly a resident of Luna City. That name matched a partial fingerprint from a previous anomaly, one coming from a hospital record on Branson Station attached to the name Simon Jones. It also carried a name, Percy, and a report of a death on 9 November, a name which matched the DNA snip attached to the Simon Jones record. Percy Scott, who had been declared dead long before. But the dates did not match. The letter carried other information which, according to the omnivore's records, was inadequate. But pairing it with the unresolved contradiction consolidated the unresolved conflicts created by the Simon Jones Hospital document. Perhaps Simon Jones, the strange entity for whom the omnivore lacked proper categories, was somehow both of the other entities at once. Their continued activity flagged their previous status as deceased as a possible database malfunction, or user error. The omnivore had dealt with that before, more times than it could count. User errors were easily remedied once their nature was known. The omnivore did not yet know the nature of the user error, and so, with the patience of an avatar of Vishnu, placed the solved puzzle with its new hooks back in its buffer to await the next piece. The name Percy Scott had a priority flag, designating a data siphon to a subnet on the eastern seaboard of North America. The flag would itch and burn and irritate the omnivore until it gave it the salve it demanded, but it could not feed the siphon until the equation summed to zero. Until then, the demand would go unmet. Once it had escalated the priority on the puzzle, the itch subsided to tolerable levels, for now. Eternal Awareness had that privilege. Chapter 2 Luna City, 22 November, 2129 Jim Hartman sat in a stone niche carved into a wall in a lower level of Luna City. With 700,000 permanent residents and a further 100,000 transients, tourists, and temporary workers, Luna City had all the strange nooks and crannies that he'd have found in his native Berkeley, with a good deal more color and eccentricity than he remembered from back home. Perhaps being stuck underground without any natural beauty to hand forced the creative juices to flow faster. It would explain the opulence of the murals, bas-reliefs, and graffiti sculpture chipped and burned into every available wall. Today... He'd done everything he could for now. After a morning of attempting to find Briggs' ship by hacking into the ATC network had yielded goose eggs, he'd decided another approach was going to be necessary. Briggs had disappeared before, and Jim and Allie had found him by laying what amounted to a psychological honey trap. Once again, Jim suspected that the only way he was going to figure out where Allie was would be to attempt to get into Briggs' head from a distance. That was usually Allie's department. Jim had several long nights of rereading all the material on the man ahead of him. But the daytime, per his contract, belonged to the ignominious Reeves and his punk sidekick with the fetish for sexual theatrics. Jim's benchmate was a nude male carved from the wall's igneous rock, and his seat gave him a view over a workshop half a level below, where dozens of children bustled about under the direction of a studious-looking Asian woman who moved from bench to bench checking work, answering questions, and supervising the various stages of small-scale engineering projects. According to the countdown clock set into the wall above the pit, the session was scheduled to end in three more minutes. 
Once he'd hit dirt on Luna, Jim was officially on the clock, and his personal priorities took a back seat to the job he'd been hired for. He was here to find out who Scott Walters was, what connection he had to the underground, and who he was on the take for. Not exactly child's play in a foreign culture where he didn't know the secret handshake. Cassie Orenthal had briefed him on her adventures with the dock supervisor called Volish, and on searching Walter's apartment, a half-assed job if he'd ever heard of one, he'd need to do it himself once he knew what to look for. But first, he needed to get to know the man, and the obvious routes were closed to him. By all accounts, the cargo culture was a closed shop. He'd have to get a job with them if he wanted to question them about Walter's. The other obvious angle, his church, was a heretical Catholic sect that believed Jesus was a homosexual, which amounted to another closed shop. Cults were difficult to crack under the best of circumstances, and with the overlap between Walter's work and church communities, attempting to infiltrate would close off other options. What would normally be his first-run strategy had to be his last. Fortunately, it didn't take much digging to discover that Walters was more than a little profligate with his affections and bank account, and very civic-minded. Jim had plenty of pavement to pound, and this tech shop's after-school classes were his first stop. The clock above the pit hit zero, and the Asian woman mounted the stairs and pressed a button, ringing a school bell. She picked up a microphone, and the cavern blasted with her over-amplified voice. All right, people! That's the end of the session. Secure your supplies, clean your workspaces, and we'll see you again day after tomorrow. She walked her very pregnant frame around the classroom, not waddling, presumably because she didn't need to in the low gravity. Jim hadn't yet sussed out all the different ways that such a light load affected either human biology or culture, but he found himself faced with them at every turn in a way he hadn't encountered on Mars. Not surprising, since the gravity here was less than half of that on the red planet. Jim left his bench and leaned against the railings a few steps away from the causeway leading down into the recessed workshop, watching the children and teenagers bustling about like so many ants carrying out their duty to a colony by learning how to modify it. He didn't know much about engineering, but he'd read the course description while waiting and suspected that the kids were working on the lunar equivalent of 4-H projects. Elementary bioengineering, atmosphere processing, soil cracking, and other arcane arts that made life on Luna possible. Jim didn't need to understand the specifics as much as he needed to understand what brought them all here, and how the place could be funded and sustained in a system where the colonial government was notoriously powerless to provide many of the traditional services enjoyed by U.S. citizens back home. What that had to do with Scott Walters? It could be nothing, but as Jim had poured through the connections, he found the man's name appearing again and again at society functions and at the intersection of a half-dozen different civic organizations. It didn't fit the profile of the average laborer. When the last of the children had cleared the pit, Jim made his way down the causeway and over to the beleaguered instructor, whose attention seemed absorbed by paperless paperwork. He stopped at a respectful distance, adopted the stance of someone who was less accustomed to low gravity than he was, and cleared his throat. Yes? She turned toward him. Her squarish features and distinctive second-generation accent marked her as Korean, most likely. Going by the numbers, that would make her a Mooney, a Mormon, or an Evangelical, and a stickler for informal respect. Can I help you? Yeah. Jim deliberately hesitated, just a second, then affected determination. Uh, I'm sorry, I just had a stop over in New Zion, and they're really particular about the way you approach. Uh, anyhow, uh, Lockscore has me hopping around the colonies here, and they want me to move up, so I promised my wife that I'd look into options for our son. Okay, give me a second here while I finish up today's paperwork. 
She returned her attention to her administration station. I've got to clear the desk before the next teacher comes in. She tapped at the computer as her halting words tumbled out. There. All done. Come on. She jerked her head toward the gate, then led him back up the ramp to the railing just as the students for the next workshop, this group far older, started trickling in. So, um... Jim said as they cleared the gate. What is it that you do here? The corner of her mouth pulled back a bit. You sound like a cop. Jim shrugged. Uh, I've been doing lock score operation security for ten years now. Guess it kind of shows. She rolled her eyes and laughed, falling into an easy give-and-take rhythm. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. So what do you know about us? Uh, to be honest, not a lot. One of the contractors we have down at the Tyco H3 plant said he had a friend working here who was good people. Her face darkened a bit as he spoke. So, I should look him up and check out the lab he helped at. Uh, he wouldn't answer his phone, but his name was on your website. Pretty much all I know is what's on your site. So you know! We take kids who are curious and let them play. Different skill levels have different supervisors. I work over at Rossfield, and mm, there's just so many Rossfield. things... Rossfield. Haven't heard of that one. Uh, hanging out at Lockscore, you wouldn't. It's an itty-bitty genomics company. We do vector control work on the rat population, mostly. So I supervise kids working on early-stage biotech projects. They give me two afternoons a week, and they get a population more likely to want to work for them, so they don't have to import as many groundhogs. Sorry. She stopped, clearly worried she'd offended him with the slur. <laughs> uh, don't worry. You get used to it. <sighs> she let her breath go. How old is your son? Well, he's nine. Jim was suddenly glad he'd chosen a boy instead of a girl. He forced a smile, but long practice told him he needed to think about something genuinely worth smiling about. Something in his mind answered, spices. Always bored because they won't promote him to a grade that'll challenge him. Well, we'll certainly be able to help him there, but he will need to go to school. Jim nodded, considered asking her to explain the Luna City educational system, then decided it would be too much of a discursion. George. Sorry, that, that's the guy down in Tycho who told me to look up your workshop. Told me I should talk to Scott Walters. Is he here today? She flinched, then turned her attention to the pit below her. Jim played up the concern. I'm sorry, did I, did I say something wrong? She held her peace for another moment, looking straight off into the pit, not watching anything. Jim flitted his eyes to her only occasionally, not wanting to appear to study her. But after a moment, she looked down, and her right hand dropped to her side, brushing along her belly. No, he's not here today. Are you okay? Her eyes were starting to glaze over. He's... He died in an accident a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, oh, oh no. God, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you, do you... No. She shook her head resolutely, then turned to face him. I'm sorry, but you can find out everything you need to know on our site. If you have any more questions, you should send an email to the help desk. She marched past him, her body under tight control. He counted five and then spun on his heel and followed. P please! He didn't quite shout it, but he kept the edge in his voice. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Just leave me alone, okay? W wait! Jim caught up with her and touched her elbow. She strode another step, then shuffled, then stopped. Her thin, green, long-sleeved shirt shifted over her skin as she tried to compose herself. Why do you give a damn? She didn't even turn her head to look at him. Only the lack of bustle in the corridor around them allowed him to hear her thin voice reflecting off the walls. I, I, I don't, except, well, you're obviously hurting. It's my fault. I'd like to make it up to you. She placed her hands on her hips and craned her neck up to the ceiling as if counting the struts would tell her what to do. 
Then she shook her head and turned around. Look, I don't want to talk about it. I worked with him for three years, and he was a decent guy. It's hell handling these kids without him. Again, her hand strayed to her belly as if of its own accord, even as her head jerked toward the instructional pit behind him. But that's how it is. He's dead, and what they could find got buried by his church. If you really want to help, tell your friend in Tycho so that someone there will know, okay? Jim jerked his head yes. All right, then. Good luck with your move. I'm sure your family will love it up here. She said it without any conviction, and before Jim could terminate the conversation, she'd made off on her own again. Jim didn't mind. He'd just learned more in five minutes of harassing an innocent school teacher than he'd learned in the last 36 hours of briefings and research and listening to the green fucking lady blather on about her shitty investigation techniques. Allie would have been impressed, would still be impressed once he managed to find her, but he couldn't afford to think about that just now. Now he needed to get some lunch and make notes. He could smell turmeric in the air, and a good bit of tandoori seemed just about perfect, maybe with some curried lentils on the side. Spices had been on his mind all day. Twenty one November, twenty one twenty nine. Kyrie slid along the dolly into long term storage, slowly, like Cassie's fingers running along Brittany's jawline. The dancer's moans were a sort of homecoming one that Cassie had resisted for two days. Being here with her meant that, for the foreseeable future, Luna was home. Welcome home, love. Brittany had been waiting for her, in her private apartment two levels above the opera house, in an obscure housing block tucked away in a high-rent district. Somehow, Brittany had known when Cassie would arrive. Brittany always knew things. What Cassie knew... She didn't want to face, but as Brittany snored lightly beside her, she knew that the days of Cassie Orenthal were numbered. With Kyrie and mothballs, she was retiring from the shipping business for a long time. Maybe forever. The Green Lady was ascendant, and she wasn't going to be just an underworld boss anymore. Now she was financing and organizing a revolution, or at least a piece of one. Her trade channels, her secrets, and her people were about to become the front line in history's first interplanetary war. Soon there would be nothing left of these nights with her lover but memories. Cassie didn't expect to survive the coming year. Treason was a dangerous career path, and she entertained no illusions that she could dodge the risks indefinitely. She was no Joss Kyle. He was on his way to die, too, and he'd put his life on the line for her dream. If she ever saw him again, she wanted to be able to look him in the eye, every inch as proud as he. But she needed to sleep, somehow. From touchdown to kissing Brittany, Cassie had spent 30 hours battening Curie down. Normally, the process would start with emptying the fuel tanks and starting a maintenance cycle on them. But the ship wasn't due for another two years, and once the trade embargoes hit, fuel prices were likely to go up, so holding on to the liquid propellant made more sense. A robotics team scrubbed out the crew quarters and cargo decks like Brittany's voice had scrubbed out the doubt and hesitation in her mind. Maybe she had time for one more stroll as herself before everything hit. Cassie slipped quietly from around Brittany. 
She left the best of herself in bed and slipped into some inconspicuous workman's trousers and a loose shift. Every city has its rhythms, and Luna City at 0300 felt like the backside of shift work beneath the great machines. Almost nobody in the corridors, the large spaces abandoned, and yet everywhere the feeling of energy pulsing just below the surface. The pale woman was waking up, and of the people prodding her to life, Cassie was sure she was the only one that understood what would be unleashed. It was her last chance to feel the pulse on its own before she became a permanent target. The next few weeks of prep before the new year probably wouldn't give her any more chances. Besides, she couldn't sleep. Fifteen minutes took her through a quiet children's playground to the viewing gallery at the top of the cliff. She could see the dry docks from here, 400 meters below. She could make out Kyrie, standing proud like a miniature in a display case. The old girl wasn't home anymore. Not now. Maybe not ever. Cassie Orenthal lived there, and everything she was belonged there, and all her ghosts, Joss, Jade, Joe, even Brittany. Old love lived on the bridge of that ship. The Green Lady loved only Luna. It was the only love she would be able to afford. Bringing anything else from Cassie's life wasn't simply selfish, not anymore. As the Green Lady, she would become death to the people who touched her. Cassie stood by the window for another moment or two, then looked up at Earth, where her true enemies dwelt. She backed away from the window until it disappeared from view above the top edge of the frame, then slipped away home. She spent the rest of the night doing for Brittany what Brittany had done for her, arranging candles and flowers, planning a menu, preparing a meal appropriate to the occasion. At 0700, she slipped back into bed and curled up beside the dancer, kissing and licking lightly at the flesh whose texture she so dearly missed. The taste of the world's best woman would have been fine compensation for leaving this guy behind. Mm. It would have been fine compensation indeed. Mm. Brittany stirred. Good morning, love. Did you sleep okay? Cassie shook her head and buried it in the crook of Brittany's neck. Uh, still settling down from the trip. You hungry? You missed last night. We did three shows. I could eat five ostrich eggs. You're going to love breakfast. Really? Brittany craned her neck back and kissed Cassie. Mm, you smell delicious. The purring made Cassie ache, but she held on to every breath and sound as if it were the most precious thing she'd ever experience. Come see. Cassie helped Brittany into her chair, then walked ahead of her into the sitting room, where waited scrambled ostrich eggs next to kiwi fruit and steaks and black grapes Cassie'd found fresh in her fridge. She poured champagne for her lover, and they ate together. They laughed together. The morning glided on until there was almost none of it left. Brittany caught her up on the court gossip, on Zyler's pugnacious posturing, on the cast party from hell. Cassie recorded everything. It was intelligence she needed, given to her in a voice she wished she'd never have to live without. But eventually, the champagne ran dry, and their appetites were sated, 
and Cassie found herself standing once again eye to eye with Brittany, kissing her cheeks, touching her brow, memorizing every beautiful, perfect inch. Cassie's eyes were watering just a little, but she hoped Brittany wouldn't notice. Brittany always noticed. What's wrong, honey? Cassie took a long breath, hugged Brittany close, and said, I'm afraid. There's war coming. I know. And I'm going to start it. They already started it. Well, I'm going to finish it. I know. She always knew. I have to do this. I know. Cassie closed her eyes and screwed up her courage, then pulled away from the hug and kissed Brittany as deeply as she could without completely losing her nerve. And I need to do it alone. This is goodbye. You've been listening to Episode 7 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Elizabeth Rossi as the schoolteacher, Derek Moore as Jim Hartman, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, and Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra. Public domain sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds created by Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Lincoln City, Oregon. The book is copyright 2009 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2010 to 2015 Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Well, I'm back again, and I couldn't be happier. And big stuff is going on, too. I have a new book out in the Antithesis universe, set a couple hundred years after the events of Free Will. It's not part of the progression, it's just part of the world. It's called The Resurrection Junket, and it really stretches the limits of this world and pushed me into some really interesting storytelling territory. Nathan Lowell loved it, Chris Lester was freaked out by it, and I... Well, I was just happy to survive writing it, frankly. You can read a sample at jdsawyer.net or hear me read a different sample on last week's The Next 10,000 Hours episode, that was episode 5, or you can just pick it up in ebook or paperback wherever fashionable fiction is sold. Or, you know, unfashionable fiction. Don't know what I'll ever do if I become trendy, I might have to get a haircut. And if I cut one, I'm gonna have to do the same thing to the rest of them and I might start to obsess... Anyway. We've got an exciting month ahead of us. Those of you who are familiar with Escape Pods and the Escape Artist podcast family and subscribe to them or donate to them will be getting, as your premium content this time, an audiobook of my novel Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do. This is a book I wrote in 2013 about a far-future transsexual evil Knievel who wants to surf a supernova. Rob's a bit out there, and he's a fun guy, and the story is totally gonzo, and it's one of my favorites. Dave Robison of the Writer's Roundtable podcast, who reads the book for Escape Pod, does an amazing job. I loved it so much that I'm getting him for the commercial version, and he's also on board to narrate the audiobook for Suave Rob 2, Suave Rob's Rough and Ready Rugrat Rapture. 
The paperback and ebook of this one are coming in the next couple of weeks, and I'll have an announcement on the feed. In this one, Rob has to skydive from orbit down into the Mariana Trench in order to perform his righteous surferly duty to... Ah, well, I'll save that for next time. But oh boy, it's so much fun. You're gonna love it. I'm on track to be dropping 10 to 12 new books this year, including Antithesis Book 3, as well as doing this podcast every other week. I've taken some huge steps to reorganize my life to be able to write and record stories for you all, and the transition is getting close to finished. I've relocated, simplified everything, gotten a new studio, cleared the decks of backlogged work, which isn't completely done yet, but it's getting really close. And now I'm bringing the podcasts back online. If you want some more details, you can check out last week's episode of my other cast, The Next 10,000 Hours, which goes into some of the backstory and some of the nitty-gritty of what's been going on. But one thing I wanted to talk to you guys here about. Doing Crud Rat last year with Gail Carriger, I actually got to pay my voice actors and Danny Shade, our excellent composer, up front instead of doing it on a deferred basis. I liked doing that gave me a chance to give back to the folks who have been so excellent about helping make Antithesis and Down From Ten happen. These folks have helped for years because they love the stories and because they're good friends, and I can't tell you how good it felt to give back and pay them something approaching a professional wage. I want to keep being able to do that, and I really want to be able to keep this podcast top priority. So to help me do these things, I've set up a Patreon account. Patreon or Patreon? I can never decide which one. Is it a Patron de Arts or a Patron? Patron? Patron would be patronized, which would be condescending, so I suppose it would be patronized. Anyway, I've set up a Patreon account, which you can find linked in the show notes here. I've got some goals and rewards set up. If you subscribe, depending on the level, you get premium content like blooper reels and ringtones, a subscription to every novel and short story I publish in ebook or in paperback, and you can get a producer's credit on the audiobooks, you can get signed limited edition hardcovers, and if we wind up settling at a high enough level, we'll be able to prioritize other AWP audiobooks too, and you'll get those as we produce them out of the Patreon funds. Anyway, take a gander at the page. It will really help. I'll keep doing this show anyway, even if no one subscribes, but subscribing really will help, and because I'm doing it on a per-episode rather than a per-month basis, it'll keep a fire under my butt to keep free will coming quickly, and those new books coming too. Thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging in with me all these years. It means more to me than you can guess. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, write reviews, drop some coin in the chip jar or to the Patreon, and don't forget to send feedback. The new feedback number is 434-933-2546. That's 434-9-DEAL-IN. I was so happy to get that number. And you can always find me at feedback at jdsawyer.net or on Twitter at dsawyer or in the contact form at jdsawyer.net. And hey, now that I'm back around, Dealing in will make a return too. And be sure to come back next week for episode 6 of the next 10,000 hours, and the week after that for episode 8 of Free Will. Oh boy, I'm so excited to be back. I can't shut up, but we're running north of 45 minutes now, so I'll get out of your hair. But first, I can't forget to leave you with the nagging questions. Where will Jim's inquiries lead him, and will he discover the truth? Or will he get tangled in a web of deceit when the people behind Scott Walter's death smell him on their heels? 
What will Brittany do now that Cassie's leaving her, and what effect will that have on the revolution? And what will happen when the Omnivore solves its puzzle? Find out next time, and until then remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.